Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. All right, time for yet another exciting episode of Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Got a great guest this week, actually this week and next, Mark Summers is with me. Now, Mark is a TV personality, game show host, magician, stand-up comedian, talk show host, radio DJ, producer. And if you're a kid of a certain age, and look, we're all kids, but you probably remember Double Dare. Well, Mark was the host of Double Dare. For Nick, he was also the host of Unwrapped for the Food Network, executive producer of Dinner Impossible and Restaurant Impossible for the Food Network. This guy has done it all, uh, an amazing personality. And this week, we get into his early career bouncing around from radio to eventually stand up after being a magician and writing questions for truth or consequences, and eventually getting the job as the host of Double Dare. A thousand people tried out for that job, a thousand, and Mark Summers got it. And we'll also talk about that show and why it was successful and how many times he was slimed. Anyway, Mark Summers, a great guest this week on Hollywood and Levine. So, Mark, you have had a very interesting and... <laughs> winding journey. So let's start from the beginning. You grew up in Indianapolis, which yeah, is, you know, the, the hotbed of, of comedians. <laughs> <laughs> well, Letterman, you know. Yeah, Letterman and Shelley Long came from nearby. Will Schreiner, if you right. know Will. Right. Uh, there's uh, a few of us who somehow uh, managed to get a sense of humor and, and, and then escape. I came out of the womb knowing I didn't belong there. My dad had a grocery store. Uh, my mom was a homemaker. Uh, I wanted to be in show business, and being in show business in Indianapolis was virtually impossible. <laughs> yeah, unless you were on Wife. Unless you were yeah. a disc oh, jockey wow. on Wife. <laughs> oh, my God. You actually know your radio history. You and I were like radio nerds. When I was a kid, uh, I, all I wanted to do was be on the radio, and WIFE was the number one rock and roll station. Uh, and if you got on Wife, that was like dying and going to heaven in Indy. Yeah, but you did go into radio, Right. Where did you work? I worked. Uh, it was a strange story. I was I started my career as a magician and we had an international magic convention in Indianapolis. And I was walking down the street with a bunch of people going to a, a big performance that night. And a guy stopped and said, um, who can teach me magic? And I said, who can teach you magic? 
what do you do? He says, well, I'm a disc jockey. I said, where are you a disc jockey? He said, W-I-R-E. I do midnight till six in the morning. I said, well, I'll make a deal with you. You teach me how to get on the radio and I'll teach you magic. And so uh, while he was doing uh, his uh, late night shift on WIRE, which was country Western at the time, God help us, um, he was doing a weekend gig at WBMP in Elwood, Indiana, just because they needed an engineer. Remember, back in the day, you had to have an element one, two, and nine from the FCC. Yeah, no, I had my first class license. Oh, yeah, oh, no, man. I went to one of those schools, oh, you man. know, where they, they cram all that information <laughs> in your head in like seven weeks, and you go in and you take the test and like, 12 minutes and then forget everything so yeah yeah i had my first class license just so i could get on the radio wow yeah he he did the licensing but because of his contract at wire he wasn't allowed to do radio anywhere else so he said to me you want to do weekends from 6 to 11 i was 15 years old and so i was playing montavani and 101 strings and you know perry como and stuff like that and uh, because the uh, guy who owned the place at the time was anti-Semitic, my real name is Mark Berkowitz, I was told absolutely I couldn't be Mark Berkowitz. So I became Mark Vaughn. I have no idea where I got that name. And so, you know, there I was on uh, weekends going, uh, this is Mark Vaughn on WBMP in Elwood, Indiana. You know, And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I couldn't believe I was doing it. Yeah, I was Ken Stevens for pretty much the same reason. <laughs> well, back in the day, it was one syllable first names and two syllable uh, last names. So I don't know why I did Vaughn, but Ken Stevens, that's a great name. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm certainly a Ken Stevens. It's certainly a memorable <laughs> name. <laughs> it's, it's why when I moved up the radio chain, I changed my name to Beaver Cleaver. Yeah, I know you did. I wanted a name that was distinctive. I wanted a name that when you heard me on the air the first day, you would go, wait, huh? What? Who is this guy? (laughs) And when your name is Ken Stevens, you know, people forget about you in five minutes. Did you ever hear from the real Beaver Cleaver? No, I didn't, actually. And uh, and I'm a little hurt that I had so little impact. <laughs> and <laughs> I was on ball, huh? I, I, I was on two <laughs> L.A. radio stations. <laughs> I was on K100 and 10Q in L.A. in the 70s. So wow. you figure, all right, it's one thing if I'm on Detroit, he's never going to know. But right. what about L.A.? Nope, nope. No, no, one ever, no one ever sued me. then you're not successful if nobody sued you here in this town man. exactly exactly so yeah i i knew i had to get out of radio when no one sued me (laughs) (laughs) well you know the radio thing uh went away as they all do dave letterman actually replaced me after i left the station and uh, i was doing magic and there was a guy in town when he wasn't even in town he, he was from upstate new york and he came out with something called the dante magic set this guy was an insurance salesman i think in rochester new york but somehow got people to make a magic set and came across back in the day every uh, local station had a kid show this is back in the 50s and 60s and so i watched him do all the kid shows in indianapolis and somehow think about this no computers no nexus lexus I got his phone number, his home phone number. I think I called one of the stations and said I wanted it. They gave it to me. And I called him at home and I said, Mr. You know, Dante, who's not his real name, um, I'm a magician in Indianapolis. Can I represent your uh, Dante magic set? And he goes, sure, kid. Do whatever you want. I'm just not going to pay you. And I said, okay, that's great. But can I say I, I represent you? And he goes, oh, sure. And I said, can you send me some magic sets? He said, how many do you want? I said, send me three. So he did. And so now I started calling all those stations that he was already on 
I'm about a 12, 13-year-old kid, and I said, hi, I'm uh, the representative of the Dante Magic Set, and uh, I should come on and do magic on your show. Well, I guess they were starved for entertainment back then, and I started to get on every kid's show, and there was a show on Channel 4, WTTV, The Independent, called Popeye and Janie, and when I got done doing it, she said to me, do you have any other magic? And I said, yeah, I have a boatload, and so about every two or three weeks, my mom would pick me up from West Lane Junior High and schlep me down on the south side of Indianapolis, and I would do magic tricks for 10 minutes on Popeye and Janie. Wow, you were probably the most successful magician in America at that time. <laughs> so yeah, to be working that much. <laughs> yeah. So um you became a magician um why? Because I mean Johnny Carson started as a magician. Was it the kind of thing where you idolized Johnny Carson and thought, "Hey, I want to do this too." 100%. I would come home from school and uh, at 3.30 on the ABC affiliate, uh, WLWI in Indianapolis, uh, Who Do You Trust came on. And I thought Johnny Carson was a genius. So I started to hear stories and read newspaper articles that he started as a magician. I thought, okay, if that's the way you get in show business, I'll be a, ju- a magician. I found out he was a, a DJ as well. So I, I learned magic. There was a, a Westland Junior High had a magic club and a kid down the street, Dave Lawton, started to teach me magic. And I thought, well, you know, this is my step into show business. Now I've been on the radio. I'm doing magic. I'll be hosting the Tonight Show next week. You know, that was my, no, that was my dream. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> How'd that work out for you? Hmm. Not well. Um, you know, you get to a point where you, you've kind of done everything you could in Indianapolis. And um, I, I didn't want to go to college. I had no interest in going to school. I wasn't. What was best. your draft number? Your draft number was probably very, very high. Yes, it was. It was. <laughs> and so I joined the Navy in 1970. Did you really? Okay. I and I said, and when I went down, uh, I want to be in Armed Forces Radio and Television. The guy said, oh, my God, that's fantastic. You would be great in that. Sign here. So I, I signed up for four years in the Navy, okay, four years. And um, when I get to uh, Great Lakes, Illinois, for basic training, um, I find out that nobody from the Navy went to Armed Forces Radio and TV. It was strictly guys in the Army. So I thought, oh, my God, now, now what do I do? Well, little side story. I, I used to run track and cross country, and I had blown out my knees. And when I kept trying to get into the Navy, um, they kept turning me down because of my knees, and they didn't want to pay for me. Somehow I talked my way in and, and got in. Well, uh, when I find out I'm not going to Armed Forces Radio and TV, um, I faked an injury. Uh, on Sundays, you were polishing your shoes so you could see your face in them. And I was doing that on the floor. And when um, an officer came in, they would yell attention on deck and you had to stand up and come to attention. Well, I faked this, oh my God, my knee and was rolling around on the ground. They said, what's the matter with you? I said, well, I got this knee problem. So they sent me over to the infirmary and I had like tons of bandages on my knee because the next day was the final uh, medical exam before you go over to, as they said, the other side. And a doctor came out and said, what's wrong with you? And I said, I have knee problems. Come in my office. Now this guy looked like uh, like the most handsome guy uh, you've ever seen in your entire life. I mean, it, it, guys wanted to date him, okay? That's how handsome this guy was. <laughs> and I'm talking to him, and he says, uh, why'd you join the Navy? And I said, well, I wanted to get in Armed Forces Radio and TV. And uh, he said, well, if you weren't in the Navy, what would you do? And I said, I would be an anesthesiologist. And he said to me, really? I went, yeah. He goes, you want to be an anesthesiologist? Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I'm going to send you to see another doctor. So he writes this long thing. He sends me to another doctor. And, and this guy does his exam on my knee. And I got to tell you, if it, it wasn't bad enough, after this guy examined me, I was in such pain. And he said to me, uh, look, 
you can either stay in the Navy for four years at a desk job or you can go home. What would you like to do? And I thought, what should I do? Should I stay in the Navy for four years at a desk? I think I'll go home. So after 28 days in the Navy, because if you're in 30 days, they got to take care of your rest of your life. 28 days, they send me back to Indianapolis. My head is shaved. All my friends are at college. I don't know what to do. My dad gets me a job at American Fletcher National Bank working in the note cage. I was having the worst days of my life. Uh, My blood pressure was off the charts. And I was having chest pains at age 18. And uh, my mom cut out uh, an article, and I still have it, from Seventeen Magazine that my sister used to read. And it said, come to Boston, learn broadcasting, Graham Junior College. Uh, I went and got an interview. Uh, I got in, and the next uh, September, I was in Boston uh, at a radio TV school where I met a guy by the name of Andy Kaufman, uh, Paul Fusco, who created ALF, Bert Dubrow, who created Sally Jesse Raphael and uh, Jerry Springer, and I died and gone to heaven. I was with people who had the same interests as I did. You know, it's interesting how you and I were very similar in terms of our age range. Um, and how we've kind of had these parallel careers in a way, because my draft number was four. Oy. So I managed to get into an armed forces radio reserve unit. Oh, my. In L.A. And our advanced training where I was from January through March of 1971 was Fort Benjamin Harrison, Indiana. I was in Indianapolis. So you were at Fort Ben? Yeah. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. Yeah. You should have called me. You know, I had nothing to do on the weekends. We could have hung, <laughs> we could have hung out. <laughs> I could, we would have gone to the huddle. Do you remember the huddle? Uh, <laughs> vaguely. <laughs> vaguely. I don't remember yeah, much about Indianapolis. There was a, it's still a Shapiro's? No. Yeah, there's not much to remember, no, even no. to this. There's a deli called Shapiro's. It's still there. It's the only good food left, I think. <laughs> okay, so now you're in Boston and you're trying to build a career in radio. What's next? Well, I uh, start doing stand up and uh, went into an audition. There was a guy by the name of Bob Orban who used to write like the worst jokes in the books, and every magic act would build their comedy act out of Bob Orban. So I did this audition and it was all Orban material. And when I got off stage, this kid came up to me from New York and said, nice Orban material. I thought, oh my God, the guy actually knew that I was stealing stuff out of a book. So I realized quickly that I needed to get my act together. Um, We had at Graham Junior College, uh, two studios, a color and a black and white and a radio station. So I was a DJ on the radio station. I was the general manager of the TV station. And I got as much credit as I possibly could. Every uh, person who had a, a final project, I would host. So I was able to build the term didn't even exist, you know, a, a, a real, a, a, you know, sizzle reel of, of what it was I was doing at Graham Junior College. My brother was a, a drummer for uh, Helen Reddy back in the day in Los Angeles. So uh, I left Boston in 1973, came out to Los Angeles. Um, and before I came to L.A., I went to a wedding in Indianapolis and a guy said to me, you know, you should call my cousin. He's the associate uh, producer of the uh, uh, Bob Newhart show. And uh, I said, okay. And so I, I called, uh, why can't I think of his name? I, oh God, it's going to drive me crazy. Uh, Michael, hold on. I'll Michael Zinberg. Mike, good, bingo, right on the money. So I called Zinberg. So I don't have and to I, take the physical challenge. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> okay. Getting so old, I can't remember Zinberg's name. So I called Michael Zinberg. I said, you don't know me, but I was just at a wedding and your cousin said I should call you. And he said, if you have the balls to make that phone call, I'll see you. So I come to see him, and 
he didn't give me a job, but he said, you know, would you like to be a page at uh, CBS? I went, yeah. So I went to CBS and I met with this guy, his name I remember, I'll never forget it, Toby Hurd. And uh, Toby Hurd said, uh, you got too many credits, you're not going to stay around, I'm not going to hire you. But there's this cable channel out in Simi Valley, okay, it was 1973. I didn't know what a cable channel was. I didn't know where Simi Valley was. I got in the car, got lost 70 times, drove all the way out there. And there was a job where you could do production and also, quote, be on the air doing news like Tuesdays and Thursdays. And they were going to pay me, I think it was 150 bucks a week. So I was so grateful that I drove back to Toby Hurd at CBS Television City and said to him, I can't thank you enough. They hired me on the spot. I start next week. I'm going to be production guy, and I'm going to be doing news on the weekends. The next thing I know, four hours later, I get a phone call from the guy in Simi Valley saying, hey, I don't know what you did. You went back to Toby Hurd and sold this thing so well that he came out. We interviewed him. He's got more experience. Sorry, but we're not going to hire you. <laughs> Welcome to show business. Now I, I know why you remember his name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I drive down to CBS Television City. I walk into his office. I said, are you freaking kidding me? And he goes, I, you know, don't go mad. Don't get mad. I said, don't get mad. I had this job. He said, well, to make it up for you, I'm going to give you a job as a page. So that's how I ended up as a page at CBS. I started working on Joker's Wild, Carol Burnett, All in the Family, Sonny and Cher, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart. I did all those shows. And it, it was like the most exciting thing that ever happened to me. Here I was, a kid from Indiana, wanting to get in show business. And just being in the room with those people made me, you know, ecstatic. So how did you, again, make the transition to getting on the air? Uh Lorenzo Music was doing the warm-up on both Mary and on Newhart, and this man was brilliant. He later, he produced a lot of shows and, and played to Carlton, the doorman on, on Rhoda. And the voice and, of Garfield. Yeah, and the voice of Garfield, mm-hmm. absolutely true. Yeah. And his real name wasn't Lorenzo Music. That's a whole other story. But um, nonetheless, um, I... Lorenzo I Berkowitz. <laughs> could have been I, I had uh, the guts and went into his office one day and I said hi my name is Mark and I'm a page on these shows I love what you do you know I do warm-ups he goes you do what shows so I started making up shows he didn't check me out I forget what sitcoms I told him but I told him I did them I had never done a warm-up in my life he said well give me your number if I can't do one someday I'll call you well that week I get a phone call from Lorenzo Music saying we're doing a show, a guy by the name of Barnard Hughes, he's on Broadway, he's going to do a show called Doc, it's going to be produced by MTM. Could you do the warm-up? I went, yeah, sure. Well, now I'm going, oh, God, you know, what do I do? Well, I'd seen Johnny Olsen do game shows, and I'd see Lorenzo. So I start writing copious notes about what I could steal from them, and I did magic, so I brought magic. And I remember meeting Ed Weinberger, who was the exec producer, and he said, who are you? And I said, uh, I'm Mark Berkowitz. I'm the warm-up guy. He said, well, what warm-ups have you done? And I said, Price is Right. And he starts making fun of me and mocking me. He goes, come on down, and then, like, making fun of me. Well, now I'm more nervous than ever. I walked out on the stage, having never done a warm-up, and somehow magically did something well. And at the end of the night, Grant Tinker comes running down a staircase at the studios, gives me a hug, and said, that may be the best warm-up I've ever seen in my entire life. I thought, oh, my God. I mean, that's <laughs> wow. insane. And so I, I, it was insane. So I started to build some confidence thinking, well, maybe I can actually do this. Um, the Mac Davis show was looking for writers. I had never written anything. Um, I applied and I met uh, Danny Simon, who was Michael Simon, uh, Michael Simon, Michael Simon is my friend, who's a chef, who, Neil Simon's brother. And um, 
he turned me down. He said, your material is awful. I would never put you on, uh, on our staff. And I said, who's doing the warm-up? He goes, I don't know. You want to do it? And I went, yeah. So I started doing the warm-ups on the Mac Davis show. And uh, they realized I had some talent and they started to put me on the show. Everything ended up on the cutting room floor, but at least they were throwing me in, in sketches. Um, Steve Bender uh, was the exec producer and uh, Gary Smith and Dwight Hemming in as well. Well, everything that uh, Gary and Dwight and, and Bender did from that point on, they would hire me. Shields and Yarnell, I, I got hired. They did a Bette Midler special. Uh, they hired me. And so I kept getting better and better and better at this. And um I was doing extra work on the side at, uh, at soap. And I realized that uh, a friend of mine who was doing the warm up wasn't doing a particularly good job. So once again, I made a phone call ballsy as ever, uh, to, uh, Tony Thomas. I said, hi, my name is Mark Berkowitz. Um, I do warmups. Are you keeping the same guy? And he goes, you know, we were just having that conversation. We don't know. He said, you know, we're doing a run through with an audience on Thursday. Why don't you come down and do the warm up? Um, and if we like you, you got the season, if not have a nice life. And so I went and did the warm up, and they hired me on the spot. And so for the next three years, I did soap. Soap was the hottest show going in town at the time. And uh, next to me now, uh, Saget was doing Bosom Buddies. On the other side, uh, Letterman was doing the warm up on Barney Miller. And so there was this, you know, conglomerate of stand up comics who were doing warm ups who were trying to get into show business. And it just opened up a world to me. I was doing. Um, on the weekends, a show called Anything for Money with Fred Travelina. Mondays were off. Tuesday, I did Alice. Wednesday, Thursdays, I did Our Magazine of the Day. I did Star Search at Night. Friday, I did Webster. Uh, and so I was making six figures back in the day when nobody knew who the hell I was. And all my friends at the comedy store were, you know, starving. And it, it opened up a world that I didn't know existed. Okay, I want to get to Double Dare. Because from what I understand, a thousand people applied for that job. And Soupy Sales was considered and Dana Carvey was considered a thousand people. And somehow you got the job. How did you pull that off? Who did you call well, I, that time? I, wasn't, <laughs> I didn't even get the call for the audition. I had a friend, Dave Garrison, who was a ventriloquist from Indianapolis. And he called me up one day and said, you know what? I don't want to be talent anymore. It's too hard. I'm going to try and become a producer. I just got a phone call from a network I've never heard called Nickelodeon. Uh, they're looking for a host for some game show. Why don't you go instead of me? I didn't even know if you could do that today. So I walked in. They said, Dave Garrison. I said, Dave couldn't make it. My name is Mark. Can I audition instead? They went, yeah, come on in. The one thing I learned back in the day was uh, to get the name of the exec producer and the casting director, uh, just in case down the road uh, you need to get in touch with them. So they had auditioned 1,000 in New York, didn't like anybody, came to L.A. I was the first guy to audition in L.A., apparently. And, and I did it. And um, they called me back three times. So I knew that they liked something. The show was going to start shooting the end of September. And the last weekend of August, I hadn't heard from them. So I called Mike Klinghoffer, who was the exec producer. I said, hey, have you picked a host for the show yet? And he goes, you know, funny, we were just talking about you. It got it narrowed down to you and another guy, but we can't decide who to pick. And I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, you know, when we did the auditions in LA, we use grownups as a part of kids. We don't know if you're good with kids. And I said, well, I have two kids. He goes, yeah, that means nothing. I said, I used to do magic <laughs> shows for kids. He got, yeah, so what? So I came up with the idea. I said, well, why don't you fly me and whoever this other guy is to, to New York, put us in a studio with kids, play the game, let the best man win. He said, I'll call you back in a half hour. He did. He said, what are you doing over Labor Day? I said, coming to New York and doing the audition. He says, right. So they flew me to New York. Uh, I did the audition in a studio with kids. Uh, the other guy came in after me. I don't know who, who it was to this day. 
And uh, that was on a Monday. On Wednesday, they called me and they said, congratulations, uh, you're the host of Double Dare. I said, well, let me ask you a question. You, you looked at 1,000 people in New York, 1,000 in L.A., came down to the two of us. Why did I get the job? And he said, quite honestly, you were both about the same. But at the end of his audition, he looked at the camera and said, you guys want me to do something else? And I looked in the camera and said, we'll be back with more Double Dare right after this. And because I threw it to commercial, they thought that was more professional. And that's how I got the job. <laughs> wow. Well, what was the audition like? I mean, how do you audition for Double Dare? We actually played the game. Uh, we, we had kids and two teams, and we did questions. We did physical challenges. We did not do an obstacle course. It did not exist. But they wanted to see the interaction with this grown man. I was 34 at the time, and, you know, 10, 11, 12-year-old kids. And uh, apparently it was fine. And, you know, I grew up, Bob Barker, I idolized Barker. And I was watching Truth or Consequences when I'd come home from Miss Helms Nursery School. Uh, he was doing uh, TRC on NBC at the time. And I was a game show, you know, savant. And I knew that when you were done with something, you just didn't stand there. You threw the commercial. So the instincts kicked in and it really changed my life. You know, it's such a hard show to do. And you make it look so easy. And it's a quality that I think you're either born with it or you're not, you know, because I see guys host game shows who are very polished and yet you can just tell there's a stick up their ass and you <laughs> manage to do it in such a way where you just seem comfortable. It seems effortless when obviously it's not. And on that show in particular, you had so much to do because you would have these physical challenges and you would have to explain them. How much prep time would it take for each episode? Was it like a, a, an hour or so? Okay, now this one, uh, they're going to get the eggs and they're going to do the thing and they got 30 seconds to do this. And, and you had to keep it all in your head and, and keep it and, all in my head and have it just flow. Yeah. And I had to uh, explain the physical challenges in under 20 seconds. They found it through testing or kids would like turn off. So I had to say, you know, what we're going to do, we're going to put the, you guys over here. You got to tell 12 eggs over here. You got to toss them through the hat. You get three in 20 seconds or less. You get the 40 points ready on your market set. Go. And so Yes, we would rehearse an hour before, and I would put that stuff in my head, go in my dressing room, go over the notes, and then just go out and do it. And keep in mind, I idolized two people at the time, Steve Allen and uh, and Johnny and Barker, so actually three. And Barker taught me something. My, my first real job in L.A. was writing Through the Consequences. Last year, Barker was the host. And so I hung out with him a lot. And what he taught me was, you're not the star the contestants are the star. If you get one or two lines in a, a week, that's all you need to do. But if you make them the stars of the show, you're going to shine. You'll have a long career. So I realized quickly that the kids were the stars of that program. It wasn't about me. But the one thing I did do, I, I threw shtick in every show. And parents would stop me and say, I watch every day for that one thing you do for me. I was doing impressions of Henry Fonda and Paul Lind and Ed Sullivan. And these 10, 11-year-old kids had no idea who I was doing. But but the crew was laughing. And I remember growing up watching Soupy Sales and hearing the camera guys laugh. And that was like music to my ears. So I was doing a little bit of Soupy and a little bit of Johnny, a little bit of Barker, a little bit of Steve Allen, stealing from everybody. And it somehow magically worked. You know, another show that predated that that was very similar was Beat the Clock with yep. Bud Collier in the 50s. Yep. And they would hire people to test the stunts beforehand. And here's a little known fact. When he was a struggling actor in New York, 
making extra money was James Dean. What? As a tester on on Beat the Clock, and he was fired because he was too good. <laughs> I never <laughs> he, heard that he story. Would solve, he would solve these physical challenges like in, in 10 seconds, and they would go, we have no idea how a normal person could do this. And he wound up getting fired because he was yeah. too proficient in that. Did you guys have uh, people testing? And, yeah, kids. and you had kids yeah, testing. Kids every day at six o'clock from six to eight, testing new physical challenges. And uh, that's how we found out if they worked or not. And believe it or not, before we hired Alan Silverberg, who was our first head writer and brilliant, uh, we had a guy from Truth or Consequences, who was about 108, who gave us physical challenges from back in the day. And we would adapt them to what was going on, you know, back in 1986 when we launched. And, um, it, you know, it was amazing. Nickelodeon had done testing and found out that kids didn't have their own game show and they were living vicariously through their parents watching Price and things like that. So, you know, at 5.30 on Nickelodeon, uh, kids started to explode it. And there was something called playground talk where a kid, you know, cable wasn't that big back in the day. And so a kid who had cable would go to uh, uh, the playground the next day and say, I saw this great show where they, you know, threw green liquids at kids and then you could win a trip to space camp. And they say that three people contributed to the growth of cable in the early days. It was Larry King on CNN, Gallagher on Showtime and me on Double Dare. Yeah, it, it certainly makes sense. I know my kids loved it. And for years, <laughs> I have two kids. For years, they wanted us to go on family double dare. Like, <laughs> not a chance, guys. Not a chance. <laughs> that was always the case. The parents wouldn't do it, but the kids wanted to do it. Oh, know? yeah. No, come on. It'll be really fun. Yeah. No, no. I'm, <laughs> I've reached the point in my life where I no longer want to be covered with slime. <laughs> you missed it by about a year, kids. Sorry. <laughs> you know, when we came to L.A. looking for contestants, uh, Billy Crystal's kids uh, came to the audition. And, I, and his wife, Janice, was I've never told this story, and I've always felt horrible about it. And I had nothing to do with it. I was just there. But there were, quote, contestant coordinators who would pick the kids, and they were looking for the most vivacious kids. And there was Janice and both Billy's kids, and I knew Billy from Soap. And they didn't get selected and you know that Billy has never talked to me since that day. <laughs> it's like, you know, his kids are now in their 30s. And I think to this day, they hate Mark Summers because they didn't get on Double Deer. So what can I tell you? <laughs> you did the show in Philadelphia, right? Started at WHYY in uh, Philly, uh, the PBS station. We were doing shows, believe it or not, when we started for 9000 bucks an episode. And uh, the show took off. We went to New York and did it for a while, brought it back to Philly, and then they bought, uh, built the Knicks Studios down in Orlando. So in 1990, we moved down there uh, full time. And so that was just schlep as well. Uh, we would go down there and shoot 130 episodes at a time. So I was down there for four or five months at a time. They wanted me to move down there, but you know, uh, there's nothing closer to hell than having to live in Orlando, Florida. So um, I, I you know, refused. So I was commuting back and forth, and my family would come and hang out and stuff like that. But it, it was tough. It was hard. I We're bet. doing six shows a day. You're doing six shows a day? Yeah, six a day. And wow. we would turn over the audiences because it was a theme park in the middle of summer. And they'd hope a sign say, do you want to come and be in the audience? So uh, an audience would come. There were like 500 people. And they would see uh, round one. They'd get rid of them, bring in a whole new audience. They'd see round two. Then they'd go away. Then they'd see, bring in another audience. They'd watch a, uh, an obstacle course. So uh, we were turning audiences over like crazy. It became a theme park ride almost at Universal Studios when they first opened down in Orlando. 
Did you ever have any mishaps, anything so bad that they didn't air the show? Yes. Yes, we had one. Um, the kids had to sign waivers via their parents that, you know, do you have uh, any history medical wise or, you know, broken bones, whatever. And they all lied. And so we were doing a, a physical challenge or no obstacle course. And a kid went to reach for something and he slipped on the slime and his arm, like <laughs> the bone was coming out of his skin. Oh, so yikes. I mm-hmm. And uh, we found out that the kid had something called glass bones disease. Okay. And, um, they lied. And so there was a lawsuit that went back and forth and we never finished it. I always felt bad for the other kid because he never got to complete the obstacle course, but we couldn't do it because of the kids and parents lying. And so that was the one show that we actually never competed. We did have one thing happen that we had an obstacle called the sewer shoot. That was this tall ladder and he had to sort of hang down on a rope and this kid flips over. And I swear to God, he was either dead or broke his neck. And I, if you watch the tape, I keep going, are you all right? Are you all right? Are you feeling good? Are you feeling good? Are you okay? Are you okay? Because I was scared the kid was like going to pass away. So he only got to obstacle number six. Well, at the end of the show, his dad was this big time lawyer in Philadelphia. And he said, come here, boys. So we said, yeah. I said, um, first of all, that was very dangerous. And my son could have been hurt terribly. But the nurses and the paramedics came and he was fine. You know, he only got to obstacle number six. Number seven was the large screen TV. If you don't want me to sue you, why don't you just give me the large screen TV and we'll call it a day. So we did. And we made a pact after that, that any kid who had an attorney as a parent never got on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Where were you living at the time? Because they kept moving this. Were you still in L.A.? And I was living mute. I had a tough life. I was living at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia for a couple of years. Um, then when we went to New York, I was uh, staying uh, at a fancy schmancy hotel in Park Avenue. I can't remember the name of it. And uh, then when I was in Orlando, I used to stay at a place called the Villas of Grand Cypress. Okay. It was this beautiful facility that Michael Jordan stayed at as well. When the team would come to play in Orlando, he didn't stay with the team. He would stay at the Villas of Grand Cypress. And they, we had swimming pools and we had bicycles and stuff and it was this condo area it was, it was dropped dead gorgeous and so they always treated me very nice and very fair and uh i would commute back and forth but i was you know there three four five months at a time when we were shooting okay there's part one of my two-part interview with mark summers now it sounds like he leads a charmed life doesn't it All those things just happen to fall into place for him. Well, as you'll find out next week, he has also had to battle a lot of adversity, cancer, a car accident. And uh, like I said, it has been a struggle and he has managed to overcome a lot of things and turn them into a positive. It's a very inspiring story. That's next week. Mark Summers right here on Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks as always to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to uh, John Wolf to Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me, my email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm on Twitter at Ken Levine. Also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. And lately, I've been featuring some of my cartoons. So if uh, you want to see what those look like, Hollywood and Levine, please, uh, you know, sign up and follow me on Instagram. Why not? God, I'm just shameless. Anyway, uh, part two coming up with Mark Summers next week, right here on Hollywood and-